We're planning an amazing agenda for APA 2020, the American Psychological Association's annual meeting, and we need your help. We're looking for engaging speakers to share their expertise with thousands of psychologists from around the world. Is your work innovative and influential? Can your ideas help others solve challenges and advance the discipline? Do you have experiences that will inspire others? If so, we invite you to submit a proposal. To learn more, please visit convention.apa.org proposals or click the link in our show notes. Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, a podcast from the American Psychological Association. I'm your host, Caitlin Luna. We're doing another bonus episode this week on terrorism in the aftermath of the New Zealand mosque attacks. We'll be exploring what psychological factors cause a person to commit heinous acts of mass violence, technology's role in spreading extremist propaganda, and what governments and communities can do to prevent acts of terrorism. Our guest is Dr. Ari Kruglansky, an APA fellow and distinguished university professor in psychology at the University of Maryland. He's an expert on terrorism, radicalization, and de-radicalization. Welcome, Dr. Kruglansky. Good to be here, Caitlin. I first want to start off with New Zealand. These attacks were clearly designed to go viral because the suspect wore a camera on his head to live stream it on Facebook. And since that time, the video has spread across countless social media platforms, despite ongoing efforts to delete copies. How have the Internet and social media changed the dynamics of terrorist groups or lone actor terrorists? I think it provided a much wider audience that was ever possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a, a, a very famous terrorism expert, Brian Jenkins, once quipped that terrorists want a lot of people watching, not a lot of people dead, uh, because they want the impact uh, of the the publicity, the uh, significance that it accords them. And the the social media, the internet uh, technology allows uh, the the publics that watches them, the audiences, to be multiplied by millionfold uh, as compared to what was once possible. So in that sense, uh, it becomes a much more appealing uh, stage, a much more appealing platform for people who are uh, trying to get attention, get notoriety, get significance through violence and mayhem. And do you think by spreading it on social media and the Internet, do you think that can encourage others? Because that seemed to be a goal of the suspect was to encourage others to commit acts of violence. It definitely can. I mean, the whole thing about uh, mass shootings is that it's a very much uh, an emulated, a copycatting phenomenon. Mm -hmm. What is particularly troubling for me is that it's spread from school shootings by disgruntled students uh, all the way to New Zealand and other places uh, where people use it for ideological purposes, uh, ostensibly, uh, and uh, anybody who has a cause and has the motivation to get notoriety, is now uh, aware that this is a very efficient tool that's going to be watched by millions, if not billions of people. Mm-hmm. And do you think this, there's some contagion element to this? I know that's a very debated topic about if there is a contagion of a variety of things, but do you think in this instance that it could be? I would assume. I would assume that uh, uh, you know, it's definitely increasing in frequency, both in the United States and now we have New Zealand. 
these uh, acts of violence that are widely publicized in the media, uh, whether it's a vehicular murder or uh, shootings uh, of different kinds, uh, these things are multiplying. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's definitely copycatting, uh, not just simply copycatting, but uh, realizing that it's a very effective way of getting attention to oneself, uh, getting attention to one's cause, getting attention to one's heroism, uh, as it were. Uh, so I would not be surprised that uh, it would be multiplying even more in the future. New Zealand's prime minister has vowed not to speak the name of the alleged attacker, um, which is something that I, a lot of people have uh, praised her for. Do you think this will help deter others, given the, get the drive that we spoke of, of many terrorists looking for infamy? Do you think that will have any impact? I think it's a very valuable gesture that she did, uh, because ultimately the motivation underlying the deed is, to my mind, the search for notoriety and significance, doing something uh, that uh, gains the respect and admiration of uh, millions of people. Uh, so not mentioning the name takes uh, chips away at that uh, motivation. Uh, to what extent this will be enough uh, is, uh, uh, is to be doubted because, uh, you know, the media will have to share in keeping the name uh, secret and uh, others will uh, will catch the video and publicize it. So, you know, whereas symbolically it's a very important gesture that she did, uh, I'm not sure that ultimately it will have all that much of an impact. Mm -hmm. And um, what are your what is your research shown about white supremacists? Are they different from other kinds of terrorists you've studied? Uh, the basic, the core dynamics is the same. In both cases of the white suprematist or uh, the Islamic terrorist or uh, the Sri Lankan terrorists uh, that we studied, the underlying motivation is what we call the quest for significance, the quest mm -hmm. to matter, to uh, have self-respect and the respect of others. This is very much the case with white suprematists. We just finished a book on uh, neo-Nazis in Germany to be published by Oxford University Press. And we studied about 40 of them that went uh, through the whole cycle of joining, uh, being active for about 10 years, leaving, and then trying to reintegrate into society. And uh, the motivations are very similar to those of uh, the youngsters who traveled to Syria or Iraq to join the ranks of the ISIS. Uh, the motivation is to uh, do something important, to mm. matter, to uh, become a hero, a martyr, uh, to gain uh, power, to gain influence through violence against others. Uh, we have a, a model that uh, explains the conjunction of this motivation with an ideological narrative and the support of a network that validates the narrative. Mm -hmm. When you have these three components together, whether it be white supremacist, uh, Islamic uh, uh, jihadists, or a, a national, uh, ethno-national terrorist, you have the very same ingredients. There is the need uh, to become significant, to do something heroic, to become a martyr, mm -hmm. a narrative that tells you how to do it, how to attain that goal uh, through uh, uh, hitting, through fighting, through destroying the alleged enemy of one's religion, one's nation, one's uh, ethnic group. Uh, 
And uh, there is a group, a network that supports that narrative, that validates the narrative, that uh, views it as part of shared reality, that this is real, that this is really justifiable, even though uh, mayhem and violence are generally prohibited in society. You need a network, that, a local network that tells you, no, no, in this case, it's allowable. You have permission. You have the, the, you know, the license to kill, uh, as it were. Yeah, this this sounds like the uh, the book you have coming out this June called The Three Pillars of Radicalization. And in those pillars you mentioned are need, narratives, and network. Can you explain those concepts a little bit more? I know we just touched on the network element of it, but the other two, the needs and the narratives. Again, the need, uh, you know, in the, in the literature on terrorism, there is usually a list of uh, motivations that uh, people uh, mention. Uh, uh, adoration of the leader, loyalty to the leader, uh, religious motivations, the perks of paradise, uh, money, even feminism to show that women can also do it. But we find that underlying all these specific motivations, there is a universal human need to be noticed, to be respected, to have significance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so how do you, it's a universal need. Most people have it to some degree. Some people are more ambitious in that regard, uh, others less ambitious, but everybody wants to be noticed, wants to matter. Uh, Most people attain it through socially acceptable means. Mm -hmm. You and I are trying to make our way through uh, our contributions to society, through our profession, uh, through pro-social deeds that uh, are compatible uh, with societal requirements. Uh, but uh, you can also uh, gain significance through uh, fighting the alleged enemies of your group. And uh, fighting and violence is particularly appealing uh, to young people. Uh, it's a universal, primordial we, uh, means of gaining significance. Mm-hmm. That's how animals gain significance. That's how little children resolve their conflict. That's how sophisticated nations gain their place in the international pecking order by having a nuclear arsenal that can uh, unleash untold violence. So, you know, there is something about violence that uh, is very appealing as a tool to significance. A narrative that uh, suggests, you know, you can become a hero overnight, you can become a martyr uh, by uh, attacking your enemies, whoever they might be, uh, can be very appealing. So this is the narrative aspect that tells you how to gain significance. And finally, because that narrative is usually at odds with the general societal narrative uh, that uh, prohibits violence against innocents, against women, children, the old folks, people who are you know, uh, innocent of any wrongdoing against you, you need a local group. Um, it may be a neo-Nazi movement, it may be a white supremacist movement, it may be some imaginary uh, movement of Knights Templar, as in the case of Andres Breivik, the Norwegian terrorist that killed mm-hmm. about 70 people in the island of Utoya. Um, it, it can be, you know, the imagined audience uh, on the internet that is going to applaud you. Uh, But you need this kind of permission from a group that you know is going to support you. Mm -hmm. So these are the three elements. They uh, create a 
a combustible explosive mixture when they come together uh, a person can be very vulnerable to radicalization and uh, be uh, often ready to embark on violence against innocents. In the case of the New Zealand suspect, he seemed to be radicalized by the internet only, based on what we're reading out in the news media, that he connected with others through the internet, spread you know their, their ideology together, and became motivated to commit acts of violence. So can you explain how the internet has replaced groups of people physically getting together? Because today, if you someone with any kind of view, extremist views, can reach someone with the same views from any corner of the globe at any time of the day. So what is what how has that changed the dynamic? It's a very important aspect of the Internet technology. We mentioned the sheer size of the audience that uh, a person, a mass shooter, a terrorist can have by virtue of it being uh, uh, advertised on the internet, but the, the aspect that you're mentioning now is also of great importance in that uh, you can have a group, a chat room, a, a group of uh, individuals who share your view almost on any topic at the internet, uh, whether it be uh, killing, whether it be terrorism, whether it be uh, pornography. Uh, and therefore, uh, that removes, to some extent, the need to have a face-to-face -face group. You can always find a group of uh, fans, of uh, like-minded people on the Internet. And I think that uh, allows people who are uh, lone wolves, who do not have any face-to-face uh, uh, -face connections with others who are similarly minded, uh, to get the kind of permission and support that uh, the New Zealand uh, shooter had. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's a very uh, dangerous aspect of the internet uh, that together with the sheer volume of the audience uh, makes uh, these uh, spectacular, if one can call them that, uh, acts of violence and mayhem appealing to people who search for significance. And one of the questions that arises after a terrorist attack is whether we can predict if someone will become a terrorist, because obviously there's many people who hold these extremist views who do not become violent, like the New Zealand attacker. And there's some who do. So can we predict if someone will become a terrorist? Uh, becoming a terrorist is not a random event. Uh, one does not get up one morning and decides to shoot up people or blow oneself up. It's, it's a psychological driven event which is influenced by the need, the narrative, and the network, uh, whose effect takes some time. If one knew uh, what is the need of the individual, if one could measure it in advance, if one could uh, see uh, to what extent the individual associates with a network of violently-minded others, if one could uh, know what the narrative is that the individual is uh, partaking uh, of, then one could predict it. Uh, so, you know, of course, we very often we do not know these things about an individual, although uh, those who are close to the person, his friends or her friends, uh, relatives, the family, sometimes they notice a change of clothing when it comes to Islamic terrorists, uh, attendance, uh, a more uh, uh, intensive attendance at uh, religious meetings, a change in the individual's demeanor, a change in the individual's uh, associations. These people who are in the immediate uh, surroundings of uh, uh, the individual could uh, 
could be aware that there is a change that and, and they should then uh, contact the authorities and uh, and and the, uh, share that information. Uh, so uh, yes, it could be predicted. In many cases, we don't have that information. In some cases, people have that information. And one way of uh, combating and preventing these attacks would be to encourage people to, whenever uh, such information becomes available, to share it with, with the authorities. Mm -hmm. Now, your, your question had another aspect, and that is uh, to what extent individuals who hold extreme views and do not become uh, terrorists or do not become shooters. Uh, you know, this uh, issue of radicalization isn't a, a dichotomy. It is not you're either a radical or not a radical. It lies on a continuum. It's a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and the question is to what extent the need to be significant overshadows everything else. And you're willing to uh, sacrifice all, sacrifice your career, sacrifice your family, sacrifice your freedom, uh, maybe sacrifice your life on uh, the altar of that cause that lends you significance. So, you know, people may hold extreme views, but not be quite ready, not be quite ready to give such dominance to this one needs that uh, would uh, override everything else. Uh, and uh, this uh, continuum uh, goes all the way from, you know, supporting it attitudinally uh, to uh, uh, willing to contribute uh, money uh, to participating in a minor role in the terrorist organizations, all the way to the willingness to become a suicide bomber and sacrifice one's life on an altar of the cause. It's a continuum. It's not a dichotomy. I mean, terrorism is a part of life in this 21st century. Do you have data to, to show if the number of terrorists are increasing? No, I don't. But uh, I think there are hundreds of terrorist groups uh, operating. I think uh, the last number was uh, around 300 that I've seen. Uh, and uh, what seems to be increasing is the white supremacist uh, groups uh, that uh, can become violent. Uh, uh, you know, there is a polarization of societies, uh, both in Europe and the United States. Uh, and uh, there's legitimations of uh, xenophobic attitudes and populist ideologies. And uh, these become now the mainstream, uh, whereas before they were uh, uh, kind of uh, a despised fringe in society. You see it in Germany, the Alternative für Deutschland is now in the Bundestag. Uh, you see it in France, you see it in Hungary, you see it in Poland. Uh, nationalism and populism are uh, are uh, becoming more and more acceptable in society, and that in turn legitimizes the fringe groups that share the same ideals and are willing to go one step further uh, through uh, employment and violence. So uh, I think the number of attacks have increased in the United States against synagogue, against mosques. Uh, from in, in 1916, 2016 onward. Mm. Uh, and you see the same tendencies the world over. Of course, not to speak about uh, Islamic extremism that uh, has been rampant in the last, uh, you know, several decades and uh, is not uh, going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. That's really one of the most pressing issues facing national security and international security today. It is indeed. It is indeed. And the danger is... Uh, clear and present and of great proportions. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, um, a very esteemed uh, colleague, Steven Pinker, 
has been showing how the, the degree of violence have been declining over the centuries and including in the last century. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is a kind of inductivist argument, the, the idea that uh, because it has been decreasing, uh, we can expect further decreases. And uh, I do not think that this is the case. I think uh, things can be reversed, and especially with the great technology, nuclear technology, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, m uh, weapons of mass destruction that could fall into the hands of fanatics, uh, the danger is great and society needs to uh, mobilize itself uh, to fight against it with all means at our disposal. Do you think there is enough international call to, to do so? I do not think so. I think uh, especially in our country, there's been very little attention to uh, the problem uh, in its general form. We have been assuming that uh, to fight terrorism, uh, the only way is to uh, employ the military and the police and to thwart plots and so forth. But the problem is social psychological. You cannot kill an ideology. Uh, Governor Romney uh, quipped uh, some years ago that we cannot kill our way out of this mess. Indeed, we cannot. Uh, the military means are necessary but insufficient. You have to understand what prompts uh, individuals to embark on uh, violence and the uh, embracement of uh, radical ideologies. You have to prevent it. It has to be a whole society effort. It uh, starts with the treatment of immigrants and refugees. Uh, it uh, starts with respect of alternative religions. Uh, it has to involve uh, trust in the police, uh, police community relations. Uh, community institutions, uh, religious institutions, social services, uh, the educational institutions. It has to be a whole society effort. It cannot be uh, left to the military because the problem is not only uh, resolvable on the military grounds. And you're often interviewed in the media about this to about the topic of de-radicalization. And two recent stories were about uh, you were part of the stories highlighted recently reformed white supremacists. Can you explain the process of how a person can become de-radicalized? There are many different forms of de-radicalization. Basically, de-radicalization uh, is the reverse of radicalization. It's a involves the same three elements of need, narrative, and network that I mentioned before. Uh, for example, in our work on the uh, German neo-Nazis, those who left the movement, who became de-radicalized, either uh, had their, their alternative uh, needs evoked, uh, they became older, they wanted to get married, they wanted to have uh, a profession, uh, they got tired uh, uh, of just putting uh, all their eggs in one basket. Uh, so that's the need component. Some individuals uh, became disenchanted with the ideology. They saw that uh, ideology is just uh, a kind of tokenism, that people are not serious about it, that uh, uh, the people in the movement are bent on partying and uh, uh, getting into fights and uh, brutality, as opposed to really caring about the societal change that they were purported to care about. Uh, uh, some people were disenchanted with the network. They felt that uh, this uh, band of brothers that was promised them, that uh, gave them permission 
to become violent isn't really a band of brothers. There is a lot of um, uh, 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 knifing in the back, uh, a lot of betrayal, uh, lack of camaraderie. Uh, so, you know, all these are elements that uh, can promote uh, the radicalization. Uh, we have also seen the radicalization that is spontaneous. For example, uh, in Egypt and Algeria, there were uh, uh, radical movements that deradicalized as it were spontaneously, but it was not quite spontaneous. It, it happened when it became clear that uh, the violence would not uh, promote significance. Uh, when the public turns against the uh, al-Jihad, uh, in uh, Egypt, uh, al-Jihad organization, uh, because they were killing tourists, and tourism is the lifeblood of Egyptian economy. Uh, so uh, the, the public turns against them. Uh, their weapons caches were confiscated. They were put in jail. And then they realized that uh, the Quran prohibits violence. So, you know, once, once it is clear that uh, violence is not going to serve the means of significance, uh, they are open, and the, the mind becomes open to alternative ideas, and they see that uh, religion actually prohibits violence, something they did, they did not see, strangely enough, uh, when the, the going was strong. Uh, there, there are attempts to radicalize people in a systematic way, for example, in uh, Saudi Arabia, in Sri Lanka, in the detention camps, where uh, suspected uh, and arrested terrorists are held. And these uh, uh, attempts uh, bring uh, together um, the terrorists with uh, uh, governmental clerics that uh, espouse a different interpretation of the religion. Uh, they uh, offer them alternative ways of gaining significance through vocational training, through finding jobs, ways of integrating into society. So. All of these have to do with uh, you know, addressing the need in a different way, uh, extricating the person from the network that was supportive of violence mm -hmm. and inserting them in, a, in the network that is anti-violence, sometimes their families, uh, and ex uh, exposing them to narratives that uh, interpret uh, religion or, uh, or uh, provide uh, alternative uh, ideologies as to what uh, significance, how significance can be attained uh, in ways other than violence. What can communities and governments do to prevent terrorism? Do Can they step in and help give people significance that they were looking for through these extremist groups? Yes, that's uh, definitely something that uh, communities and governments can do. Uh, I'm uh, collaborating with uh, one such program in Denmark, the Aarhus model, in the city of Aarhus, uh, who is uh, run by my friend, uh, Dr. Preben Bertelsen. And uh, they uh, use psychological principle to uh, involve community institutions, the schools, the police in particular, uh, social services, uh, families, to prevent uh, radicalization whenever it rears its ugly head, whereas uh, whether it's uh, youngsters in the school or even returning fighters from uh, the field of battle in uh, Syria and uh, Iraq. It requires a concerted family effort. It uh, requires trust between pol uh, the police and the community so that the families 
feel that uh, the police is on their side mm-hmm. and, they, uh, and is not going to just uh, uh, arrest and punish their members, but uh, they will do all they can uh, in order to uh, mitigate, attenuate their tendency to become radicals. So, you know, communities can do a lot. Uh, there is an attempt that has been criticized in many places, the Strong Cities Network, of which American cities, several American cities are also members, uh, to, to promote this kind of community effort. It's not without its problems. Uh, sometimes some communities feel targeted uh, and uh, uh, victimized by, by these programs. We need to keep searching for ways of addressing the problems as a society in its entirety. Uh, psychologists can be very helpful because I think that we understand the roots of the problem. We understand that it is uh, the, the, the needs, it is the significance, it is the narratives, it is the networks. How to translate it into policies is beyond the meager power of a, a few psychologists. It has to be a whole community effort, a whole a country effort, a governmental effort, uh, it has to be a large initiative, uh, long-lasting initiative, and of course, uh, it's difficult to implement because you know uh, politics is local and short-sighted. Uh, and uh, what we are talking about is a long-term uh, program that will last and, and extend itself. Uh, for many years. Yeah, so for psychology's role in de-radicalization, do you think that psychologists are brought in enough on those those elements, like working with governments, working with with communities? I do not think so. I think that uh, both uh, the psychological community, APA, APS, uh, all all kinds of organizations uh, that bring together psychologists of various ilks, should offer their services to the government to a great extent, but also the government should uh, uh, realize that uh, the problem is not going to uh, go away unless uh, a large counter-radicalization effort is being made. And, uh, you know, under the previous administration, President Obama, there was uh, one attempt uh, of a a large meeting at the White House to promote uh, counter-violent extremism initiatives. I think it kind of subsided uh, at this point, uh, but I think you know, it is a dire need uh, that uh, needs to be uh, undertaken, uh, the initiatives have to be undertaken uh, both on part of psychological societies and on part of uh, governmental bodies that would realize that uh, this, this kind of uh, activities are necessary if we are to control and uh, reduce uh, that very dangerous phenomenon that we are uh, seeing uh, uh, growing now. So there's still a lot of work to do, but do you feel like there is hope in this area that we can stop the tide of terrorism and prevent more acts of violence and de-radicalize people? There is always hope. I think it's a very challenging problem, especially given uh, the uncertainties that are sweeping the world these days, uh, the migration crisis, uh, the refugee crisis, economic issues, rising nationalism, uh, you know, the European community uh, disintegrating or falling apart to some extent. Uh, these are very uh, troubling phenomena that uh, uh, unsettle the kind of uh, 
peacefulness and complacency that we have had since Second World War. Mm -hmm. And uh, these uncertainties breed uh, populism, breed simplistic ideologies that uh, speak in black and white terms that define us versus them. Uh, and these ideologies dehumanize the outgroup. And the, the, it's a very short step from, from those kind of uh, uh, perspectives to legitima legitimation of violence. So we're uh, living in very troubling times, but uh, uh, we need to do all that we can to assuage uh, those uh, uh, dangerous possibilities and uh, use the knowledge, the psychological knowledge, the social, social psychological knowledge that we have in order to promote counter uh, radicalization activities wherever we can. Uh, because, uh, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, we are, uh, we, we are, we are drawing cl close to the edge of an abyss mm -hmm. uh, because it, these are very dangerous times and uh, we must uh, uh, do what we can to, uh, to resist those uh, alluring and yet extremely dangerous tendencies. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kruglansky. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Caitlin. Dr. Kruglansky will be featured in the April issue of the Monitor on Psychology, APA's magazine for members that covers science, education, psychology practice, and more. The story will be posted online on April 1st. You can read it by visiting APA's website at apa.org monitor. This is the second bonus episode we've done focusing on breaking news, in addition to our bi-weekly podcasts that air every other Wednesday. We want to know what you think about these new episodes and our regularly scheduled podcasts. Please share your comments and ideas with me. You can email me at kluna at apa.org. That's K-L-U-N-A at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is part of the APA Podcast Network, which includes other great podcasts such as APA Journal's Dialogue about new psychological research and progress notes about the practice of psychology. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, speakingofpsychology.org, to listen to more episodes. I'm Caitlin Luna with the American Psychological Association. 